0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. We all come to this practice for various reasons. We find it, we find ourselves here because maybe we have experienced a lot of dukkha or suffering in our lives. A lot of people come because uh, they're driven by uh, deep suffering. Some people come because they're just looking for more well-being, more happiness, maybe a little less stress. I know that when I came to this practice, which actually I started here, this was my first meditation home. Uh, I used to live just up the block, actually and kind of, in a way, stumbled in here. I didn't know what it was at all. Uh, came with a friend, and uh, was really surprised immediately when introduced to the practice just how much uh, I was in need of connection with myself. I didn't even realize it at the time, that it was something that I was longing for, something I had been searching for, but wasn't even aware of that at the time until I met the practice. And then it became quite obvious. In fact, the practice to me had this coming home feeling. Like I was finally coming home for the first time within myself, really being able to connect with with myself, my body, uh, and start to understand my mind, and understand my mind and its perceptions on the world. So we come to this practice for various reasons, but then we stay in the practice because we want to understand. We're motivated to come over and over again and to continue sitting and practicing and exploring what is in this moment? Because we, we desire, deeply, to understand. And I want to read you a quote. This is from uh, Ajahn Tejaniya, or I'm sorry, Utejaniya, in his book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And he speaks about this desire to understand. Most people don't seem to really appreciate the value of the work of awareness. They tend to think that the, import, the importance of meditation is, is in the things that they observe. But the objects do not really matter. People also spend a lot of time thinking about the results. They want to experience peaceful states. They want to bliss out. Then they get attached to these states and to the objects they focus on. The real value of meditation is not in getting such results, however enjoyable they may be. The real value of meditation is the actual process of being aware and understanding what is happening. The process is important, not the result. Instead of complaining about what is or is not happening, you should appreciate that you are aware, regardless of what you are aware of, and learn from it. Awareness alone is not enough. Having a desire to really understand what is going on is much more important than just trying to be aware. We practice mindfulness meditation because we want to understand. I find this to be a really important reminder because we kind of forget that sometimes. We get really focused on the technique and wanting to do it right, don't we? (laughs) see a lot of nods, yeah we forget that the goal isn't to be able to sustain our attention on the breath, and to quiet the mind, and to feel good. That's all really helpful and wonderful. But, ultimately, the purpose is to understand what's happening in the moment, understand the truth of how things really are. So when we get glimpses of that through insight, it hooks us. It reminds us of why we keep coming back over and over to this practice, to this path. And so the Buddha lays out this beautiful Eightfold Path of Practice. This is something that, in the last month, I've been teaching a month long intensive in Alameda, where I teach, uh, on the Eightfold Path. And it's been a really beautiful exploration. For myself, teaching it, any time I have to teach something or get to teach something, I then get to learn and, and explore it a little bit deeper than, than I normally would. So it's been um, such a pleasure for me to really start to understand the complexities and the intelligence behind this path that has been offered to us. And this path is split into three sections. Um, So there's sila, which is our ethical conduct, really paying attention to how our actions and our speech and livelihood have repercussions, whether they are wholesome or unwholesome, and trying to cultivate the wholesome. There's samadhi, or concentration, which really is the section of the path that involves our practice. So right effort mindfulness and concentration and then the last one is Panya, wisdom. and This is wise view or understanding and wise intention. This being at the end of the path alludes to the fact that sila and samadhi help cultivate this wisdom, this understanding, but in order to start the path, there, there usually has to be some level of understanding, some kind of insight that something is, is not quite whole or something isn't quite right in my life. Understanding dukkha or seeing dukkha for the first time, really seeing it, and understanding that maybe there's a way to the ending of this suffering. So this wisdom actually starts at the beginning of the path and is cultivated through the path and is what is ultimately freeing at the end of the path. As we begin to practice and cultivate this Eightfold Path, we begin to see the unwholesome mind. We begin to know the defilements of the mind, the defilements being greed, hatred, and delusion. These three are deeply rooted in our habits, in our ignorance. We often don't know that they're even there, but as we practice and we begin to shine a light on how we see the world, or how we're perceiving the moment. We begin to recognize these three, and this is really wonderful. This is where we start to understand, is seeing these unwholesome traits in the mind, these defilements. So greed... Greed is a bit like that reaching for, that we, reaching for happiness, reaching for uh, pleasant and pleasure that we have a habit of doing. We often feel very entitled to always have happiness and pleasure in our life. We'll do weird things to get it, too. It's very motivating. And it's, I, I feel greed is kind of this reaching forward. We're not really in the moment. We're not really um, available to what's here right now because what's here right now isn't enough. So this is this tendency towards greed, this particular defilement of the mind. Another one is hatred. Hatred to me has that same movement out out of the moment, unsatisfactoriness with the moment, but it's more of this pushing away, protecting, aversion, not wanting what's here. we end up doing some really um, painful things in our, in our uh, hatred in, our, in this particular mind state. Sometimes we do it out of protection for ourselves. This mind state will come up as kind of this false protection, which is kind of sweet in a way, but really rooted in our ignorance of how things are. So oftentimes it's fear-based. Delusion, I think of delusion as what fuels everything, fuels the defilements. It really covers, almost like with a, with a thick fog, the reality of the situation. And so oftentimes, because of delusion, we're completely unaware of uh, our habits, unaware of the greed and hatred that might be fueling or coloring our perception in the moment and so this delusion is often there is often present when the other two are there especially when we're not seeing them clearly sometimes these defilements are are talked about as poisons in the mind so poisons that really saturate and color our perception I think of them as weeds in a garden if you have ever planted a flower bed, you know that it's important to uproot those weeds. If the weeds are left alone, then the roots oftentimes can choke the flowers that have bloomed or spread and make it difficult for the seeds that you've planted to ever bloom. And so in the same way, uh, these defilements, these poisons in the mind. They distort our perception and they prevent us from really understanding. The Buddha talks about these three uh, defilements as having multiple layers. And the first layer uh, is called uh, the latent tendency. Uh, in other words, saying that these poisons in the mind can be dormant. And oftentimes this is speaking about uh, karma, cause and effect. Perhaps something that we've done in the past, uh, mind state that wasn't seen clearly in action or speech uh, that cultivate cultivated some unwholesome mind state that then, kind of, lingers there. And so this latent state uh, is the first layer, and I think of it as the roots of those weeds in the garden. The next layer would be manifestation. So these uh, latent uh, tendencies have now arisen into due to some kind of influence, have arisen into the mind, and now they are in our thoughts, they're in our emotions, they're in our intentions, and our perception is now very much colored by them. I think of this as the growth of that weed just before it hits the surface of the soil. The last one is called Transgression. Uh, This layer is where we haven't caught the defilement and now it's coming out of our mouth. (laughs) It's coming out in our actions. And in this way, I think of our our weeds in the garden. This is the the part that we actually now see sprouting out. Uh, Oftentimes, I think when we're Practicing, especially in the beginning, we are noticing the transgressions quite a lot, <laughs> aren't we? And so uh, we find that through the path, that sila, the practice of ethical conduct, protects us and helps us uh, chop off that weed uh, at that, right before it sprouts, or right before it comes out of the soil. So this transgression uh, in our, that comes out in our speech and in our actions, we can pull that weed through our sila uh, by developing wholesome conduct. Samadhi, the section of the path that has to do with our practice, allows us to see and understand these defilements when they arise in the mind, the manifestation of these defilements. We can begin to understand them, dissolve them, stop them, or at least not act from them through our practice. This is all wonderful news (laughs) and... The, this path also gives us a way to go to the root of these defilements and, and actually uproot them. This is done through wisdom, the cultivation of wisdom. This is how, or why, uh, wisdom is at the, is the culmination of the path, or it's the end of the path. These roots, what, what is actually nourishing these defilements, is ignorance. And so, if we're ignorant to what's going on, if we don't understand, uh, just through that, we are creating the conditions for more weeds to be grown, for more weeds to be seeded. And so this is why we practice, and this is why we stay on this path.. Ignorance, it's something that we're actually pretty comfortable with. <laughs> it's cozy. it's familiar. It's not always comfortable, but but it is our comfort zone, isn't it? That changes as we start to practice. More and more, we, we start feeling at odds what, with what was our comfort zone, but uh, it can be a little scary to leave that cozy place of ignorance. And yet, it has such a strong influence on our perception, how how we perceive the truth of how things are. I was at a day long recently, oh, maybe a month ago, um, with Anam Thupten Rinpoche and James Barras at Spear Rock. And Anam Thupten Rinpoche, who is a a Tibetan teacher in Point Richmond, uh, has this wonderful way of explaining the Dharma And just a wonderful Tibetan accent that you can't not listen to. And he started his talk by looking out over the probably couple hundred people who were there. And said, here we all are, under the same roof. And some of you are in paradise, meaning some of you aren't at odds with what's going on in this moment. You're at peace with it. You're understanding it. And he said, so some of you are in paradise. And some of, uh, some of you, and he kind of stopped and thought about it, and said, how do you say this in English? Are just having a bad hair day. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we all are, under the same roof, You know, you're all listening to the same talk, you all, perhaps most of you, sat in the same way (laughs) during the sit just before. But our experience, our perception of what's going on and how things are going right now is most likely not all aligned. And this has to do with our perception and just what's going on in the mind, what's being nourished in the mind when we start to look at this root of the defilements and what feeds it, the ignorance, when we start to bring understanding to this and how it's coloring our perception, the three, there's three core realizations that we start to have. The first one is that we are finding permanence In impermanence. We find satisfaction in unsatisfactoriness. And we find self in selflessness. This is what is fueled by this ignorance. This is what colors our perception. This is what gets in the way of us not understanding. And so through practice, we start to see that this tendency to see permanence in impermanence. It's comforting to feel that things are going to stay the same. Change is not always so comfortable. It takes practice to really feel at ease with change, just in general, just general change in our lives. And then when you start to practice and you start to see the moment-by-moment impermanence, the arising and falling of mind moments, the rising and falling of uh, physical experience, the rising and falling of each breath, of each in-breath, of each out-breath, there's so much impermanence. And this can feel a little shaky. I want to read you something, this is from the Diamond Sutra. It speaks about, it speaks to this impermanence in a way that isn't so heavy, but, but really speaks to uh, the ethereal nature of things. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And so could this possibly be part of the reality? Is this possibly what we are looking to find, to understand? Finding satisfactoriness in unsatisfactoriness. I know that for me, in this practice, as I've gone along, uh, in fact, especially in the very beginning, uh, when I started, I was, uh, I think I had just turned 20, and was into all kinds of stuff. (laughs) And as I started practicing, I quickly started to realize, to my dismay, that Parties and really late nights and shopping and all this stuff that I thought was fun and cool and gave my life meaning and all of this wasn't that fun anymore. I was actually starting to see that, actually, I don't really feel good when I do this, or it really bugs me later on in the day, or I just am not as clear when I wake up in the morning, and that doesn't feel good. And so I went through this huge transition period where uh, my life as I thought I knew it as being fun and exciting was no longer fun and exciting. And I I blame the practice for that. It was really (laughs) disturbing. (laughs) Sometimes we start to see things we wish we didn't get to see, but those doors get opened and we can't shut them again. So I'm very grateful for it now, but uh, at the time it was difficult. And then, also, just my identification as a person, self and finding self and selflessness. Well, who am I without this type of life? Trying to redefine myself, then, uh, became probably what could be called born-again Buddhist. <laughs> you know, just finding another identity within uh, another culture, really. Letting go of one to take up another. And this is kind of what we do. This is where we find our ground. Because it's comforting. It makes us feel assured that everything is here to stay. That uh, who I am means something. (laughs) And so I think of this a bit like... um, Being on a sailboat. I really love uh, sailing and have, um, for some time, sailing on the bay. And when you first start to sail, or when I bring people out who haven't sailed before, you'll watch them try and maneuver as we're out there around the boat, and they get kind of pushed around, and uh, they feel really unsteady on their feet uh, because of the swell and the movement of the boat, and they don't feel very confident walking around on deck. But over time, you watch people start to gain balance, start to understand that when the boat moves one way, that you move with it or you move in the opposite direction. And they start to feel more confident with their footing. I know for myself, I love jumping around the deck. Uh, Sometimes I hang on, sometimes I don't. And I know and understand the feeling of Uh, movement that is uh, available on a sailboat. Very much so our practice as we go down this path, we start to feel sometimes like we're losing our footing. The things that we thought we really knew, maybe we don't really know. And that's uncomfortable sometimes as wisdom develops And so it can feel like there's no solid ground, that everything is moving. And so how do we cope with that? Oftentimes we look for more solid ground. But actually with this practice and with the cultivation of wisdom, we learn that we don't have to look for more solid ground, that we can simply become more confident with knowing how it is not to have that solid ground, how to move with it how to be in connection with it, how to flow with it. So, I think I'll stop there, because I, I want to leave at 10.45. Is that right? That's when we stop. I want to leave time for questions or comments, Uh, about what I've said, or if you have questions about practice in general, that would be fine, too. And I think we have a microphone that will get passed around, if you wouldn't mind speaking into that. Yeah. It's nice to see you back. Welcome home. Thank you. (laughs) Um, As you were talking, I was wondering, I remember when I saw you last... um, you guys were just ready to go on a big Asia adventure, and I was wondering how <laughs> how your, um, your trip because a lot of us uh, you know think well okay we 'll we'll go to Asia and uh, develop our practice more or you know go to different uh, places to meditate and whatever and I just sort of wonder how that trip actually fit in or did it you know with what you 're talking about today sure <laughs> that 's right. I love that you remember that that was in two thousand and five wasn 't it. Um, That's right, so when I... uh, That was part of my new identification (laughs) as a Buddhist, had to go to Asia, which I'm so glad that I did. And I spent about six months in Thailand and a little bit in Burma and a little bit in Laos. And uh, it was really quite incredible and humbling, I would say, more than anything. Um, what I thought again actually shattered my idea of what Buddhism was. You go to the East and Buddhism there doesn't look like this. It's there, There's spirit worship and merit-building and deities and uh, gold Buddhas everywhere and it's really different. Incredible devotion, um, saturated in the communities. Uh, and so my sense of self was a bit shattered during that and certainly humbled by the conditions in retreats where uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time on retreat while I was there in different monasteries. And uh, it's no spirit rock. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, it was uh, really incredible. And, and it was just part of the journey for me. I found that... Um, that experience gave me confidence when I came back in my practice, and that I had the capacity to practice for long periods of time and all this, but actually, I found the instructions when I came home to be really important and useful um, more so than i found than I found personally in Asia. Um, others have had different experiences, of course, but uh, yeah, I think um, the, my current practice is more in alignment with what I've learned in, in retreat at Spirit Rock and IMS and Forest Refuge. So I don't know if that really addresses your question, but yeah, it's good to see you. <laughs> yeah. How about in the back here? I, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned that when you started practicing, you noticed that... Things that were meaningful before, like partying, shopping, <laughs> stopped being meaningful, and it caused profound change in you. What I'm curious about: how did you find reconciling it with people around you? It's <laughs> yeah, a great question. Yeah, I, um, you know, that was a real struggle for me for some time. <clears throat> I know. Uh, There were friends that we just weren't able to connect anymore because I wasn't willing or really wasn't even able to meet them in the way that I did before, which was not so wholesome, perhaps. Uh, It also, I think because I took on an identity as a a Buddhist or or practitioner or whatever, um, I, I imagined I came off a little bit annoying to, <laughs> especially family members, and you know I talked about it a lot and probably a bit preachy. And um, Sylvia <laughs> uh, Borstein has a great saying that I really took to heart when I heard it, and I think was one of the things that really brought me to some more balance with the, with it all. And that was that um, she, I think she said something like, "My family." Uh, can't stand it when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. Something like that. Yeah. And so I think that that's actually mo- really skilled. Uh, more, skilled than, more skilled than I had at the time. Um, that as we're, we're taking on these practices, we're not asking others to take it on with us. Um, but to know that our cultivation... And our understanding, in our development of wisdom and compassion has, has a ripple effect. And that people feel that, they start to notice that, they love you when you are a Buddha. And so that's, I find, have found now, that that's such a wonderful way to connect with people, is not needing to um, sell them on the idea of this practice, but simply demonstrate through action and uh, just, my, just how I am and sometimes that gets them interested or not, and it doesn't really matter. Does that answer your question? Okay, you're welcome. Let's see, maybe one more. It's not really a question. I just wanted to thank you for your talk and to tell you how deeply uh, what you said uh, resonated with me about um, the shifting, no no solid ground, because yeah. I feel like lately in my life that's what I'm experiencing, yeah. and it's true that some people around me, who kind of liked the way I was for years and years, are—they're not so happy. with yeah. it. But yeah. they have to—they have to deal with it anyway. Yeah. So thank you so much for your talk. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad it was helpful. Okay. So we'll end by dedicating the merit and a little bit of metta. And I've really enjoy, I really enjoy dedicating the merit. It's one of my favorite parts about giving a talk because it gives us this time to reflect on the possibility of this practice not just being about us, that this practice isn't just for our cultivation and well-being and understanding and awakening, but also for all beings everywhere, acknowledging that our actions and our wholesomeness and cultivating this has a ripple effect, and that we don't understand how far that ripple effect goes. And so, with that in mind, we can wish that uh, all beings may all beings be happy and content in their life. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings feel safe, even on unsolid ground. And may all beings have the opportunity to tap into that inner wisdom and understanding of how things truly are.